la 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 Lucas and Zach podcast show la 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 Lucas and Zach podcast show we do the podcast we say the words Zach and Lucas all right Lucas and Zach podcast show well um welcome everyone to our singing hour and welcome everyone to our podcast on the feeling of having already experienced the present situation this is, of course, the feeling of deja vu, oh, which we I, may be talking I, about. You're going to, <laughs> about to that joke me. only works if you respond to it, and you gave me nothing. Thank you, audience. We'll be um, send us an email if you would like to re- like Zach as a podcast host and film yourself reacting to that joke and giving me a better reaction than Zach just did. I didn't um, feel like you got to be have more clarity and. and <laughs> All right, we're here because it's week three of Tony Scott and Denzel Washington. We're talking Deja Vu, which is kind of the forgotten movie in their in their collaboration. I feel like if you people yeah, talk about their, well, I feel like people talk about their movies and no one talks about Deja Vu. So um, I think from that respect, it is. Um, but yeah, we're not talking about Deja Vu yet. It's time for last Letterbox movie, Mister Zach Ford. Hit it. Um. My last live action review um, and, and the continued uh, segments of 2021 loose Zach, Matt Zach going around the fucking strangers, but Zach watching movies without any um, organized system. Um, I decided. Zach, I, I, can you please stop making jokes directly when I drink water? I almost spit all over the laptop, ruined the entire recording because <laughs> you had a joke when you took a drink. I, this is. Um, my my New Year's resolution is I only say jokes when people are drinking things, <laughs> and this is how I can truly know if I succeeded in my humor or not. Right, uh, I appreciate it. Anyway, so 2021, Lou Zach scrolling through HBO Max. I love Zach. Classics. I'm like, should I rewatch 400 Blows <laughs> um, or like another Truffaut movie to do this? And I spent like 40 minutes, and I decided to rewatch Birds of Prey instead. Boo! Boo! <laughs> boo! Birds of Prey, uh, possibly my favorite DC movie. It, it fights with Wonder Woman, OG. Um, because it just, it's just it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It has like shitloads of fucking style. I know it gets compared to Deadpool, which I like despise. I think the humor works better in this, but the main thing that sits apart is like Deadpool's pretty ugly to look at. It's just like gray and there's nothing stylish. And Birds of Prey is just like a pretty um, stylish, kind of, I don't want to say stunning. But um, very like engaging um, movie to look at. Um, I feel like it has kind of a neon colors, but doesn't go over the top. It still feels um, like inherent to the environment. Um, and it, but it also creates a little bit of an exaggerated reality, like all comic book universes um, should be. But they kind of have since Nolan verse has kind of overly grounded themselves, and this goes back to like. Um, you know, Tim Burton, Batman's and that stuff is saying, let's make, you know, comic book movies campy again, goofy again, over the top again. And it allows a world for all these actors that I love, um, you know, to do crazy shit, to just like go go full ham. And I just enjoy watching Ewan McGregor go full ham. I enjoy um, watching Elizabeth, Mary, Mary Elizabeth Winstead doing something serious, but in, a, in like a hammy serious way, because that's like the joke of the character. I'm also just like, Looking real cool, and, and her get up is it, um, fucking Rosie Perez, who never gets roles anymore. 
having a grand old time, I feel like, and, and enjoying yourself. Um, and I do like Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn thing. I do hope that you can do a Birds of Prey movie without her to really separate that as a group. Um, that's kind of what they end up with at the by the end of it. But I still, I, I find her, if you really pay attention to her performance other than just the jokes, she's doing like real stuff. It's not just, like there's layers beneath beneath the humor and the things you know within her face. And I think she is connecting deeper with the character rather than just be like this kind of shocking thing. And Luke's is a dumb person. He thinks Aquaman is good and that movie's ugly as shit and Birds of Prey is so much better. You don't appreciate uh, the real style. And you um, hate directors like Kathy Young. Wow. Okay, this is my fifth favorite DC <laughs> movie. Um, I do like Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Um, I do actually, I think I agree with your final premise, which is I would like to see the Birds of Prey movie more than anything, because I'll be honest, I don't like Harley Quinn as a character. I don't think Margot Robbie is a bad actress. I just wish she was doing other things because I think that character is just a, kind of obnoxious and not very interesting to lead a franchise around. And I do, I do, I'm going to make it. I do think it is like Deadpool. I think the movie is trying to be Deadpool, but I think Ryan Reynolds is just significantly better at the monologues and the voiceover than Margot Robbie is. I, I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Ryan Lords is a better actor. I don't think he is. I just think he is better at the specific sort of like talking and narration. And I just think that um, when I watch this movie, it just feels like kind of a mess. And I feel like, I feel like, I feel like you either see this movie like I do as a mess or you see this as fun. I think the movie is kind of like a bunch of stuff thrown together. And it's, I don't think even Zach's going to argue that this movie is like regimented and split out and particularly well produced and clear and concise. But no, I do that. I, I think it almost is pointedly not that. It's kind of, yeah. And, I, like, and maybe that just, and maybe that just doesn't work for me. And maybe that doesn't work for me. I do think, I, I do think a frustration for me of the movie is I think you and, could do a lot more. I, I think he gets a, not a lot to do. I think he's good. I like the moments he's in the movie. I just wish that character was given more. And I think that the way he leaves the story is anticlimactic and kind of disappointing, considering what you've kind of been given to expect from him. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, Mary Lewis Winston. I love her as Huntress. That was actually my favorite part of the movie by far. Just spin off movie, just her. I would watch. I'm not gonna she, lie. I would. She, she struck, strikes such a unique kind that's different than the rest of the movie, but it still like fits in. Just yeah, absolutely. Work. I would. I mean, honestly, if you told me tomorrow that a Huntress solo movie was coming, that movie is like one of the most anticipated DCU movies for me. Like instantly. Yeah. Like I would much rather see that than like half the stuff that's already been talked about. Like I would much rather see that than even a Flash movie. I'd rather see the Huntress movie than a Flash movie. Want to see a Flash movie? <laughs> No, I don't. I'm just saying. I'm saying if you were to put it out there in the big ones, I would rather see that than like basically everything, but probably Robert Pattinson. You want the you want the Blue Beetle movie? Is that even a thing? Yeah, it's, no, it's not going to be a movie. He's a character. And he oh, okay. I'll be honest. I, I love. I, we just started talking about the thing that we should never talk about, which is announced DCU projects. You should just pretend that they don't exist and then wait till they show up in theaters. It's like the opposite of the MCU. You can legitimately get excited for the movie two and a half years from now, and with the DCU, you really should just be like, "I will pay attention to it when it's released," because unless it's released, probably not happening. But I think between Birds of Prey, Shazam, um, and I would say put Wonder Woman eighty four in this, even though I didn't really like Wonder Woman eighty four, but I do like that they're all trying to make 
uh, comic book movies fun again. <laughs> Let's just go for goofy. And he has a. I, I don't think they all need to be goofy, but I, I think that's an important realm that uh, keeps part of those universes. Then I also think they just did a good job being like, basically, fuck the extended universe as an idea, and just being like, hey, we're never gonna catch up to Marvel. They're like way ahead of us. Like it was really smart to be like, why are we trying to copy something we can't copy right now? Like you were always going to, you were always gonna fail trying to be Marvel 2.0. You were never gonna succeed. So I do think there's like a lot of value in just being like. Let's give Matt Reeves some money and he'll do a Batman movie. Let's give people, you know what? Even if I don't like Birds of Prey, let's let's give her some money and give her some people and let's, let's see what happens. Like, I do think there is value at least in in having movies produced in the way they're doing it. I didn't particularly like um, Wonder Woman eighty four either. I thought it was kind of meh. But you know what? It, it's a movie that um, is irrelevant to the rest of the universe, and the rest of the universe is irrelevant to it. And Patty it's Jenkins not like, hamper anything else. You get a if you get three bad MCU movies in a row, it's really gonna start hampering your experience moving sure. forward. Like it's a third one. But Probably why MCU is bad. so controlling of their product is because they're, they can't afford to have three in a row. They can't. And DC already has, but it doesn't affect anything else because they don't matter to each other. You can have every single you know Suicide Squad movie be abysmal, but it doesn't affect your enjoyment of the one. Yes. Yeah. By the way, talking of excited, James Gunn, the Suicide Squad. That movie looks like a movie we might both like. That movie looks ridiculous. Yeah, we'll live stream it. We'll watch it. We'll <laughs> Second, I'll dress up, go to I'm a the theater, room. and live stream it from the theater. <laughs> that is called party. <laughs> I do think, though, you just like, I mean, the DCU does really succeed when they kind of kick the idea of the whole multiverse away. Like, if you think of the ones that don't. The what the DCU movies that work the worst are the ones like Suicide Squad and BVS yeah. and Batman. Like all the movies that it's like, let's put 10 characters in them. And the ones that kind of, I mean, from my story, I like Aquaman the best. Aquaman, um, who cares if there's another, the other heroes are in that movie? It's just like, it's Aquaman. And like, even like, you know, and the same thing exists for Birds of Prey and Shazam. It's just like, these are characters in their universes and we're watching their stories. Or especially the original Wonder Woman. Like, things that's in the same time frame in, in different places. Which, by the way, I think was really smart of them to... Even with 84, which I don't like as much, I do think there's a really intelligent thing to be like, let's have all these set in the past, which allows Patty Jenkins to do kind of whatever she wants, because you can hand wave it away being like, well, it's 26 years away till anything else happens. So, like, oh, you man. kind of... They should have done that movie and Aquaman way before they ever tried Justice League. <laughs> Yeah, or, or BVS. I mean, probably shouldn't make your second movie in your universe the giant team-up movie. Um, it, we should. I mean, there is a legitimate argument to do a DCEU podcast month. I don't think we really want to do it, but I do think the inner workings of that franchise are fascinating, even if the movies aren't interesting. I don't know. We're, we're still talking about this. But I just think it's fascinating that like you were trying to copy Marvel's idea of a connected universe. And you looked at Marvel's philosophy, which was, we're going to set up a bunch of movies. Like, we're going to build the base of the tower before we put the first big piece on with the Avengers. And you look at that philosophy and look how well that worked. And your idea is, we're going to put one base piece on and then crush it to death with a giant piece on top of it with BBS. It's just, it's just a very weird thing to look at in that they were trying to do the Connect Universe thing. But then they went, they made such a massive error so early on that they should have known wasn't going to work. It's like a weird, it's like a weird, um, I guess, lesson in terms of basic awareness of the other movies that have existed before. They were just trying to catch up immediately. They wanted like, there's already post like Avengers and like, we have to get to where they are now. We can't afford to have a phase one, like Marvel. Yeah. 
that puts us too far back. And it really screwed them over. Honestly, I think if they'd take it, if their phrase one had been Man of Steel, a Batman movie, a Aquaman movie, a Wonder Woman movie, and you could really a Flash movie. like you could have done five or six movies. Because thinking, I guess there was the Incredible Hawk, but really, like Avengers was able to like reintroduce the new Hawk, and that was a big part of it. It's like that's yeah. you, get one, you get one character you can expose us to in your big team up movie. And yeah. Justice League could have been that for like Cyborg, which does have a good focus on that. But so everyone could have individual movies, and Justice League could be about now we're including Cyborg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Or Cyborg didn't even need to be in Justice League. Like, can I be honest? There's the whole thing with Cyborg. I don't like the character in the movie. To be... I don't like the character in general. He's I think he's bad, honestly. And like, I don't want to get into it, but the whole situation that happened after the fact with him. Um, is just kind of a dumpster fire on a lot of levels. And I don't know if I know what you're talking about. I will just say this. I think if you make allegations about something, you need to present some kind of things to substantiate your allegations. (laughs) Um, You can't just keep, you can't just keep tweeting a phrase and think that counts as making a point. It doesn't. Yeah. I think it's pretty well done. The Joss Whedon is kind of a shit bag, though. Oh no, it's gotten it's gone to like he's accusing producers and like the stuff he's accused is a little. I, I think there's it's gone beyond like Joss Whedon isn't fun to deal with to like it's it's all over the place at this point. But to leave us without being canceled, uh, we will address that uh, we don't know the situation and cannot verbalize much about the situation. And sometimes it's okay for for not everything to be known. Not everything has to be. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not saying I, I'm not saying I'm taking a side. I'm just saying I think if you need to, I think if you need, I think if you're going to present allegations, you need to to give. Um, that's not not take a side. Is what I'm. No, saying. I'm not taking a side. I'm saying I think no, that you're not taking a side is the issue. <laughs> I feel oh. like you're accusing him of being a liar. Let's also not do that. No, I'm not saying he is. I'm saying I'm saying I'm not saying that he's lying. I'm not saying they're lying. I'm saying that. I think if you're going to have that stuff out in the open and allegations exist, I think you need to uh, present the evidence behind them. And I think that's, I think what, as what as a viewer of the situation, what I would like to see is more evidence so that, you know, you can actually make a choice beyond just like, you know, PR statements, which is what it feels like so far. But let's continue. <laughs> I just want to say Cyberish is not that good of a character. <laughs> I don't, I and idea. I agree. I'd be honest, I agree. And then, it just kind of soured me on him as well. Which just like, I guess he's not coming back. That was at least the rumors that are out there. Which I'll be honest, he wasn't. He was a nothing character in that movie. But Zach is excited for the Snyder Cut. Okay, I, I kind of decided I am. I, I came, <laughs> came to terms with it this week. <laughs> so yeah, maybe we'll enjoy it. <laughs> I think whatever you think of it is going to be just a bizarre experience from a think- pop culture perspective. Just because I'm going to take it as a TV experience, as the way they're designing it, and my my expectation is just immediately lower for TV because I'm a fun. <laughs> watch while I'm cooking, that I can have more fun with like a half-assed Justice League show than I would with the half-assed version of the movie. I am very interested to see what happens when you take the original movie, or I mean, I assume Snyder's original vision was somewhere around a two and a half hour, three hour movie, like. Whedon's ended up being, and then turn isn't like a four hour was, show or something? Hour movie, and it was pretty short. They like, oh, movie. yeah. Well, it's not, I mean, I think Whedon is definitely more of a, a brisk filmmaker than Snyder. Snyder's definitely a little bit more expensive. We didn't know this, 
Let's talk about how Avengers not a good movie. Avengers is. I like Avengers, but I also have like soured on Avengers significantly since seeing initially. It's got a lot of that second act is boring. Age of Ultron's in my like bottom three. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you and me also. I think I agree with you on this. That I just kind of like the more individual movies. I think they're more interesting when you focus on one character. Yeah, like Thor: The Dark World. Great. Or you, <laughs> Zach, crafts on the Avengers. This is going to be the podcast that we get hate mail for. I'm talking about the the DCU. You're crafting on the Avengers movies and praising Thor: The Dark World. Let's move on. Guess who's doing an Avengers? Guess who's doing a Marvel movie? Chloe Zhao. What movie did yeah. Chloe Zhao make? Hey. The writer. News coming out of this and from her perspective that she got to do whatever weird shit she wanted to. And I think she's pretty excited about the movie, so now I'm excited. I'm going to be honest. If Turtles actually sounds like... I kind of love these movies yeah, where you go into them and I have no idea what the characters are. Yeah. And like, I kind of appreciate that. It sounds like nonsense. And I want her to make some credible art out of nonsense. Of to be fair, the last time I walked into a theater for an MCU movie and thought I was getting nonsense was Guardians of the Galaxy. And that was awesome. Yeah, that's why I don't say it's bad. Me saying something sounds like awful nonsense is almost a credit because at least you open to be surprised. It's better than knowing what you're getting. You have no idea what you're getting with Eternals. Especially I mean, all, I mean, Guardians is the first like, all-time great trailer because you're like, wait, it's just a bunch of old classic music and you've got a tree and a raccoon? You're oh, like, I want to go see this. Yeah. And, and knowing Chloe Zhao, she really got to put her touch on it. Does that mean that she, like, casted authentic gods in the Eternals? Like, they're just real <laughs> gods existing. <laughs> Who is in the cast of the Eternals? And can we consider any of them to be gods? Um, Kamir Nanjani. And also, I mean, clearly a god. I mean, he's got godlike physique now. Yeah, I'm over. Who else? Uh, let's see. Richard Madden? Richard Madden, definitely a god. If he's Game of Thrones people, they're all the same person to me because I watched one episode. Richard Madden is the man. Team Rob for life, baby. Would have been the best king. Um, yeah. I don't know. Wait, wait. Read off that cast. What the fuck? I thought you were about to drop some names. Oh, okay. You yeah. want me to read the cast? Okay, Harry Styles. is in it. I didn't make that up. Okay. Mail is in it. Um, Angelina Jolie. Oh, I forgot that. I didn't know uh, that. Somebody named Laura Ridloff. My favorite. Who's on The Walking Dead? Never heard of her. Brian Terry Henry. Very good actress. Brian Terry Henry. Definitely a god. Yeah. Um, Salma Hayek. Harry Keegan. He has to be the villain, right? That fucking creepo. He's like the number two creeper after uh, what's his face from Get Out. What's his name? Oh, Jesse Plemons. No. Oh, um, oh, oh, no. Oh, what's his name? The guy who always looks like he's like playing yeah. some kind of. And say so our oh. two top creepos are him and Barry Keegan. Yo, Gilgan is just creepy. And oh my, this, this is like the boring. Caleb Landry Jones, who is just, yeah, he's like a creepy was, dude. Just a this is our best dude. moment of the show ever. I'm putting this in our greatest uh, moments. Back <laughs> at Lucas Reed. Reed, Reed <laughs> 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 uh, Kit Harrington is in it. Uh, yeah. Gemma Chan is in it. Gemma Chan's great. Who is, uh, I mean, credit to Chloe Zhao. She took Gemma Chan, who was in Captain Marvel, and was like, screw that crap. She's a different oh, character in another movie. Captain Marvel, right? What? She's the she's one of the alien people in Captain Marvel, yeah. right? Yeah. She's really good in Let Them All Talk. And uh, the um what's the Jonah Hill Emma Stone show? She's also really good. 
I just remember her from um, oh, she's from Ex Machina. She gets to dance. She's like one of the best scenes of the whole past decade. She gets to dance I just remember her from the the BBC, the uh, British uh, comedy show Fresh Meat. She has like a two episode run. That's like a weird drama student. Like, is it you're... possible that I'm confusing her with a different actress? Yes, because I don't think that's fair at all. <laughs> Did Zach just confuse Asian people? <laughs> She's not an ex machina and she's not in the Jonah Hill show. It's a whole <laughs> yeah, she is in Let Them All Talk. Thank you. Oh my God. <laughs> we're 20 minutes into this episode. We've gone off. Um, <laughs> let me get back on track. The writer, Chloe Zhao's movie, is awesome and really good and um, really sneaks up on you emotionally. You kind of watch it and you're just getting immersed in the world. And then, kind of with 20 minutes left, you kind of get hit with the. The gut punch of just like um how rough it lives is to live in this world where you know all you want to be is a rodeo rider but you've already experienced an injury and you've got like a friend who's paralyzed because like it's just a really um really haunting movie of like um what exists when you don't have a lot of options and the one option you really want to follow is kind of being shut off to you and like how do you deal with that circumstance? And I just think it's, it is just really authentic and really real and like, feels like just like a story. It, it feels like a documentary, buddy, but it's a narrative story. And um, I think you have to give a lot of credit to Chloe Zhao, who I believe like directs and produces and writes it. Like she, this is like, this is basically a one woman show and uh, she deserves so much credit. So I'm, I'm glad I watched that. Trying to watch, uh, you know, I know we've talked about this, uh, I have, after looking at my watches from last year, I wanted to make sure I watched more from directors of color and female directors because looking back at my 2020, it was just like, wow, I have a lot of, a lot of watches from white guys and um, not enough from anybody else. And I think that is partially because the more mainstream stuff tends to be made by white guys. So Part of the that's part of the problem is just the what is presented to me, but also I am capable of stepping outside that and finding the work that was done by people who are you know not white men and trying to uh, experience a greater um, scope of directors. Yeah, you like the writer, don't you? I like the writer, um, and and I like Nomadland. Um, I love Nomadland. Not, more not seeing writer. it, I'm jealous. I, mean, yeah. I have thoughts about amateur actors, but the writer and other stuff. But that's not a different show. Um, no, no, go ahead. I don't hear it. If you uh, can make it short. I mean, it's a very simplified idea. I think sometimes um, the critical world can can glorify amateur performances because of um the you know reality that it places you in but i think sometimes it also like you're watching amateur actors and there's just a lot that they can't do and a lot of because what they can't see and i think what why nomadland i think does take a step up is you do have francis mcdormand who, who can emote things in so much more of a universal way where i think when you have amateur actors it makes it more specific to an experience yes. um and almost more like a documentary functions in those ways as well rather than you know being able to fully connect your empathy into a character um it just always appears more like you're watching someone else rather than connecting um, and this is a, this is a weird so this like you're it also sometimes can seem like exploitative in a way mm. like you're taking this, experiences and making them for money i don't know I guess this is a weird this is a weird movie where the writer does legitimately credit actors as themselves 
in the final credits. Like the actors are playing themselves. Yeah. So it does kind of fall into that. I do. I would agree with you though. I think sometimes you see amateur actors um, and you want to see more. I think this was kind of like, these are the, I think you're right that these are, these actors are limited yeah. and I don't go, I, I go away from really enjoying the writer, but I don't go away from it being like, I want more of these actors in other movies. Yeah, I think where the discussions kind of get a little obnoxious to me. Like, it's like, do you think that they're going to have like this big career, like give opportunity, but I just, they're not actors. They're playing themselves. They're good at their playing version. True. But also like there are some, we've talked about the commitments where I really wanted to see more from that guy. Cause I thought he was great. I don't think the writer. He was a real character, I think, and not. Yeah, no, he was not playing himself, but he was also not a, an actor. Um, uh, I do want to give really quick credit, so I'm not come off as a full asshole. The actress that is in both Ex Machina and Maniac, the one I was referring to, her name is um, Sonoya Mizuno. Um, okay, she's really good in those as well. So. Not Gemma Chan. Yeah, she she does all of the Alex Garland stuff. They're both in Crazy Rich Asians. They are both in crazy Asians. Um, I'm glad that we just spent 24 minutes mostly talking about the DCEU. I will say, go back to our chat. She is really, she's one of the best parts of crazy rich Asians. The movie I don't like, but she is the cousin, right? That um, yes, she's the rich one. The rich one, yeah. and she's really good. Yeah, she's one of my favorite parts of that. I also do find that movie to be, um, I think, underwhelming, especially when you when there are people in the world who like love that movie, and I'm kind of like, this is a sort of generic rom-com. But you know what? Why not make a generic rom-com with a cast of non-white people? So, you know, that's valid as well. Uh, let us continue on to our discussion of Deja Vu. And um, we're going to start with... That joke that time? No, you, it's fine. You did a good, nice dodge to camera, so I'll give you five points. Five points for that. Um, and continue on and start with Zach Ford plot summary. Zach, hit it. Okay, this movie's about time travel, so this is all good to fuck up. Uh, Just to be clear, if you get to a point in time travel, you're allowed to say time travel and move on. Okay, awesome. There's a ferry. Uh, it's carrying, like, Navy soldiers. Uh, the ferry blows up. Yes. Denzel comes in, does Denzel shit, mm-hmm. and he's like Sherlock Holmes, and he's like finding bomb slime off bridges. I'm like, oh, this is like spe- this specific kind of bomb slime. So I know how this happens. He's a much better uh, detective or mystery solver than he was a man on fire, which is a pawn he mentioned. We'll talk about this later. <laughs> Anyways, uh, and uh, Val Kilmer um, comes in, like, hey, I like your style. You're smart. You know what you do. Come into my like special group. That uh, they use specific tools to uh, solve mysteries. So he joins um, like Adam Goldberg and a bunch of other nerds uh, watching TV screens, um, and it's like uh, it's four days and so many hours um, back that they have such a uh, that they have like a live feed of, which um, he's like a little confused about. It. They tried to explain it in basic terms, like oh, like it just kind of like creates three D, you know. Um, resemblances of that time but we can only do like this exact minute and then he gets a little too uh suspicious of like how they they seem like they know we're there like there's other but they never explain how they still know they're there and they never fully explain the technology after this anyways um they don't really ever explain the technology in the first place they just have a yeah. very bizarre number i will turn it out to you i still see how, the, how she knows something is there that makes no sense um I don't think we're. It's, I think you're it's not allowed to talk. This is my summary. Shut your goddamn mouth. 
Uh, he's stares at a bunch of TV screens, um, stares like a champ. Um, he gets angry and breaks TV screens when they're not explaining to him what's going on and explaining it in a way that makes sense to him. And it's like, oh, we have like, there's like a folding time. And um, we're actually getting like the live feed from this folded time. It's, it's coming back to us. That's why we can only do that exact minute. Like we can't change anything. We're just watching it, you know, happen. So they're trying to observe around the boats um, to see if they see any activity. But he's like, ah, um, what's her face? Paula Patton. Uh, I think she has something to do with it because he's just like good at deducing. And phone calls or stuff about getting a, a minivan for bombs. I don't know. Um, so he, <laughs> they just watch her forever. They just like give up on anything at the ferry and just follow Paula Patton around. Um, and there's a lot of suspicious things happen that made it seem like like Denzel had like fingerprints there and other things like how'd that happen? They don't think about it enough, I think, <laughs> in the moment. Um, it's like not suspicious enough. Um, and like he was at the funeral. I was like, why was I at the funeral? Um turns out he uh that some actions that they take um cause a lot of the results that they were noticing before, such as Paula Patton being dead at the ferry, spoilers. As his partner also having this part and being taken at the ferry, they discover all this um, that they their role cut kind of already caused this future they are seeing, which is all good, great time travel stuff. It makes a lot of sense. Um, but then they decide to send Denzel back in time and kind of just blow up all that sense uh, to Smithereens because um, he wants to go back to China to um, you know save Paul Patton, stop the bomber from happening because they kind of. St- started to feel guilt. He started to connect to her through his own guilt because he they started to realize that she only died because of the actions that he decided to take. Um, shit happens. Jim Caviezel uh, and Denzel fight and um, Paula Patton's still alive. Jim Caviezel dies. Time travel shit. The end. Denzel and Paula Patton end up together, but he doesn't remember who she is. It seems like they're in a full different, like, uh, whatchamacallit, what's it called? Well, I think it's because they're different. It's, it's not she the fa- same universe anymore, the same time thing. They're it's a different like, timeline. She falls for timeline B Denzel and then ends up with timeline A Denzel. Yeah. Could, so can we just jump and immediately talk about time travel? No, we should absolutely start with it. I think it right. – does this follow – is it – this follows back to the future time travel, right? I can't keep track of all the different – Back to the future – back to the future is the idea that if you – it's like the different time streams. You go back, and there's two different timelines. And but if you can yeah. affect the other ones, so basically, like what they realize in this movie it, is, it, you can affect the other one. Well, that, that's where this movie makes no sense because it did affect the other one, but also create its own strand. And so, how's that work? Well, I think what happens is their actions of um, involving Paul Patton and involving his partner. Mm-hmm create a second timeline and and then Denzel goes back to that second timeline. So now we have the original timeline Denzel who is never involved until the end and then we have this timeline just not even exists anymore cuz otherwise how would that happen? I think they merge at the end when timeline B Denzel dies in the water and timeline A Denzel arrives to meet Paula Patton. I think that's when they merge back together again. Although I don't timelines together is that the rule as long as I don't know if it's they have to die. I think that that's just the way it ends up working. In this movie, I also think this movie. Um, I don't think. I think um, Tony Scott is interested in time travel as a device to tell mysteries, not as a time travel device. I do not think he cares about time travel. He like you. You and me have both watched a lot of movies. There's a lot of movies where the the director sits down and goes, "We're going to explain time travel," and they have a scientist with a board and they do like 45 minutes on it. This movie does not care. No, but but. 
this is something I appreciate for the first hour and a half so much to where it kind of um, goes against itself after is mm-hmm. that before Denzel travels back, I mean, the way it's handled, I think makes tons of sense and they don't okay. over explain it, but it's so grounded, but just the way that it almost seemed like they, everything they try to change, they're already were feeling the results. They just didn't notice it. Like they mm-hmm. already heard, you know, being dead and his partner already happened. That was part of the reality. So there's more they're just discovering the role they had rather than changing it because that's what they caused. So yes. I, that maybe that would be a very anticlimactic movie. It's like, oh, look at this shit we did. And that'd be like the end of the movie. Like yeah. we, it was kind of like the, the you know, troubles of messing with, with time theory. That would be, the, you know, the theme of the movie. Like they only, yeah. every bad thing happened because they interacted when they shouldn't. They fucked with science. But then they decide they still want to have like the hero aspect of it and the more climatic event to send them back rather than just dealing with you know their results. But if there's just the effects of time travel that I think was, would be able to tie together because it's also not going too deep into it, mm-hmm. it keeping it kind of at a shallow level. Yeah. I think they also do a good job showing that um, the impact you can make on the t- past like, I like the fact that the, the impacts are small. Like, one of the biggest ones is, like, oh, his partner dies in the explosion versus his partner dies in, like, being shot by Jim Kavir. Like, the, like the differences are really, like, they're not um, they're not massive. Like, I, I appreciate that this story does not try to turn it into, oh, wow, you went back and then you caused, like, some kind of crazy time vortex. Like, you know, like, you watch some movies and they take time travel and it's, like, I think it's sometimes time travel gets really boring if you try to show us ridiculously high stakes for the you know the consequences of time travel like oh it's going to cause the world to run I'm like come on like i like the fact that it's small yeah, I do like actually have- consequences already existed that's like yeah. i was seeing that but they were already experiencing consequences they just weren't aware of that the problem is how are they aware of some of the consequences but then some of the other ones change like how are yeah they- <laughs> how, like they're aware that paula Patton died there which was only caused by his time travel but then she also gets saved by the time travel so how does both happen at once like, if they were already feeling the results of that, wouldn't she still be alive? I, think. I do think they also, I think they also claim responsibility for some actions that they didn't actually cause. Yeah. I do actually, have, <laughs> <laughs> I have a question, I have a larger question to you, which is, I actually was thinking about this and I was watching this. Is this movie better if they don't send a person back, but they continue to have to use yeah. time okay. travel to try to, like, send messages and communicate like, I wonder if that's a more interesting movie than just, like, the standard, like, Denzel goes back as the Terminator. Yeah, it's so much more interesting and kind of like a downbeat in a way. Um, it does really, it does really pop out, right? They do, like, the generic ending where it's like, look, we send our, our bad guy back to, to fix the... Like, I feel like we've seen that in, like, so many movies. That's not that interesting. I think it would have been way more interesting, like, we have to figure out a way to send messages to people or follow them in the goggles so we can figure out where stuff's happening, but then alert other people in the past to, you know to, to, to fix that in real time i do think that's it forces them to be creative because you just mentioned the goggles thing which is like so creative and so engaging and so much more engaging than just traditional fight scene you know and a great action sequence too yeah him driving the car um while looking like into the past but driving in the present oh it's great following him but through just like normal society happening and then him losing track of it so just having to do it by ear it's all really exciting and great like use of unique technology just as like one-eyed goggle thing that seasons of the past it's very exciting so if they spent this whole movie of them navigating you know the past and the present at the same time it would force them to do more creative actions like that and have more creative technologies and do things instead of 
hey, let's travel back in time. Then we could just do normal action shit if we want to. Yeah, it does feel like, um, yeah, it would have been more interesting unless, I wish they didn't cop out. It does feel kind of like a cop out. We're just like, oh, we've run out of ways to use this in a cool, interesting way. We're just going to send the person back. I mean, it's not bad. It just goes from being, I think, a lot more interesting to being a lot more kind of generic action movie after that point switches. Like, I honestly think that if they don't send him back, this movie might even be higher rated for me, which is kind of insane that, like, you know, this is not a movie that I think a lot of people talk about being really great. But, like, Deja Vu is actually, like, really interesting. It's really fast-paced. It kind of gets back to the Tony Scott stuff um, that you like. It does... We were talking to Matt Queller last week, and he said that this does a lot of the, like the editing and visual stuff of Men on Fire. I actually don't think it does. It's not. It does some cool stuff, but it doesn't like. I think you and me both can agree the Man on Fire stuff is distracting to the point where you stop paying attention to the plot. I think this is actually a really good melding of it. Like it, anything they do visually, it adds to the plot. Like it adds to the story. It doesn't like. I don't. I'm not like frustrated and like get that off my screen like I was at times of Men on Fire. It also makes sense with the technology that they're using. So a lot of the weird yeah. zooms and stuff happens from the TVs they're watching and from the zooming in and changing, you know, the camera. Uh, mm-hmm. thing. And, and so it's it's happening as you're watching, but like that's the technology and that's how they're controlling it, um, rather than just being the reality of the movie, changing and zooming and doing random shit. That does feel like it's Tony Scott's favorite part of the movie, which is the tech. I think he just loves the ability to play with what that's like on screen. The fact that you can go back, the goggles are super. There's like, I mean, we talked about this. That's such a good action sequence where he's like crashing into things because he's seeing in the past, but there's the present. So like he's looking at a version of it where there isn't a car on the road, but there is a car on. The, like I just think that's just such a good sequence. And as we say, you're saying how this movie could have been, you know, like a top tier sci-fi action thing. Is if that movie consists of all that they're forced to be as creative like that throughout the whole movie so you get three set pieces that are so unique in that way this is a top tier action movie right yeah and it would have been cool if they had to do more of the sending messages back to alert people and then you know trying to figure out how to fix what happened in the past before it happened without actually sending an individual back so it was truly like can we manipulate the people of the past with the information we have now to cause a better outcome. I think that would have been in some ways really interesting and also kind of more of a moral, uh, like a morally ambiguous movie where it's like, if you're putting other people in danger in the past using the information you have now, like, does that make you a good person or a bad person? I think that's like an interesting question to talk about. Like, you know, but it was interesting for the first 90 minutes. Yeah. And it was interesting that they like, like his partner dies in both scenarios, but his partner dies in a much, worse way arguably because they send him back a message and give him information like and well, also he was only there anyways he was only at the ferry because he sent the message i think that's how he always died they never saw his body at the oh up. it was his car that's how he uh, always died that's what i'm saying some things were so in stone like that that was because their actions other things were able to change but, interesting because um, i thought he i thought that was an incident i thought that was trying to insinuate that he had exploded on the ferry with the other people no, that was one of the like suspicious puzzle pieces. Like, oh, he was on vacation. It's like, but we found your partner's car there. Like, uh, okay, like, why that happens? Because Denzel interacted. So I do like that level of guilt, and I think that level of guilt. The only reason that his, you know, kind of obsession with Pop Patton makes sense. Like, it doesn't make sense why he cares so much, but it does once you realize 
he cares because of the guilt that he yes. feels interacting and then that that's his responsibility. So I think that does add the more interesting layer that I think sets us apart from Man on Fire in my care of the characters because of that level of guilt. Yes. And, you know, feeling sad about his daughter dying and being drunk is, you know, seen a thousand times and not that yeah. deep. Really. They didn't have that much complexity, but this I loves with guilt because of the way he, you know, interacted with the movies um, technology in the movie's world, it, the choices he made made adds a, a distinct layer to this character. You also learn about that character's layers in the plot as the plot happens. Yes. You're not forced to watch him have 45 minutes of scenes of sitting there looking at a wall feeling guilty about Paula Patton. Like, I think, you know, that's one of the biggest differences. I do, th I will say, the one thing about the Paula Patton Denzel relationship that annoys me is why on earth do they have to kiss? That doesn't make any sense to me. It's just a weird. Too sexy people. I guess. I guess so. But it's just. It feels like. It, it just feels like such a weird, like, tacked-on moment that doesn't need to happen. Yeah. But like, it, it also at the same time doesn't really negate my. Um, you're enjoyment saying, you're that shirtless Denzel in your house, and you're not gonna make out with him, even though it doesn't suit the movie's purpose. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Denzel is still, I think, Denzel is still holding, Denzel is still holding on some of the beers from uh, Man on Fire in this movie. <laughs> um, flight. Yeah, I mean, Flight is more fun. Flight is, flight is the, the piece of Denzel drinking movie. Fine. Get the fuck out of here. It's a good movie. It's not fine. <laughs> um, I do want to talk about um, the villain who is in this movie for yeah. not a lot of time. Um, I think Jim Caviezel is really good in yeah, this very small role. What? Jim Caviezel underrated. Is this I think Jim. I don't know if he's underrated because I think he gets the recognition he deserves. I think he is just criminally underseen. He gets stuck on like person of interest on like a CBS. No, but that's what that's what I'm saying. Because I feel like in some ways he's maybe he's underrated and that he deserves better roles. I think he gets the recognition he deserves when he gets the roles that. Are worthy. Yeah. He doesn't need like I do. I do think Jim Caviezel is like one of the weirdly fascinating careers of the '90s and 2000s. If you go back and be like, this guy is really good on everything. Why on earth does he not have a better career? It's like a really big question. Do you think Jesus ruined him? I think Jesus ruined his career. That really? Wow. Yeah, so wow. We're definitely we're definitely getting hate now. Not because he likes Jesus, because he played Jesus, because the Passion of the Christ, and then I I feel like he was able to. Overcome just like the media, um, you know, I guess. that movie kind of was at the time, and so it just kind of blocked. He really doesn't do that much after this, you're right. I don't think it's stuck in CBS, yeah. But even like the movies he does, if you look at the movies he does, it's not a particularly impressive. Well, person of interest is uh, five years after this, and um, seven years after Passion of the Christ. Um, I do think. This character is really scary because this character totally fits in 2020 of this yeah. person who thinks they're like totally right in their warped, twisted mind. And they're taking justice into their own hands by Imagine being a criminal. Today. We did not watch it today, but that would have been rough. Or yesterday. Actually, so. Not to put uh, this in the time span, but. Zach so, Fork. So big, big world events may have happened um, in about the past 24 hours. We can just, we'll just open it up. We're pre-recording this. <laughs> Um, it is currently uh, January 7th. Yesterday, um, rioters took over the Capitol. Uh, domestic terrorists 
took over the capital. Um, we watched this a couple days before that. But yeah, Tim it is would have been there. Even even <laughs> even without seeing what happened yesterday, That's this true. movie is eerily, eerily familiar to 2020. And the idea of Jim Caviezel is a guy who is crazy, out of his mind, but is firmly convicted and yeah. believing that he is rendering justice on people for not letting him join the military by killing a bunch of them. Yeah, thinking it's your responsibility to take things in your own hands to make the country this way you imagine. It's scary. I mean, also, he has a really good scene, uh, interrogation scene where he's – and I think there's something scary about the fact that he is clearly crazy but also very eloquent about how crazy he is. That he, is – Like not stable-minded at all, but like stable in his speech. Like it just yeah, has he's, that, like, he's really he's like an eloquent intellectual way of thinking about his insanity. Like he's not some mumbling fool, but he has this crazy ideas and like, he's like someone who like thinks that he went through this big, you know, philosophical breakthrough. Yes, yes. Like, he believes he's the type of person who's written a five hundred page manifesto that is weirdly brilliant, but also psychotically disturbing. Yeah, and he's just it, it's. Um, it is a very good performance. It's a very small performance, but he kind of he kind of kills every second he's on screen. Should they have had more of him? Because they they introduced him halfway through, so it's not really a secret. So should we have known all along who it was? Rather than us covering it, so you can get more. No, I feel like it's kind of. I feel like they kind of perfectly played it. Like I love the performance, but I'm also hesitant to say I want more of it because I feel like that character was never supposed to be the main character. Yeah. I also think that like. What are you going to give us more? I don't want any. I don't really want a backstory more than what he gave us, because mm -hmm. I think I think what he no thinks is what's good about this movie. I think created in the film just like his is created. Yeah, but I think but I think it's actually better. I think what's good about him is that he is the one who tells us his backstory, like what he considers to be important about it. It's not like we don't have to see. Oh, what was this kid, guy like as a kid? Like no one cares. I, I just I think it's interesting to see, like how he became this person but only through what he thinks is the right things yeah jim caviezel really good in this movie jim caviezel very bizarre career yeah very bizarre. Jim he's not that old but he's like 45 probably 50 i'd say he's in his 50s okay let's do another imdb search let's list every movie he is 52 years old he is oh my god Ugh, everyone's old these days how'd this happen it's interesting yeah, I mean Denzel's in it, like seventy next year or something like that, and that just like kind of blew my mind. Is what I when I was reading, the, looking this up. Well, and Denzel he, has weirdly gotten more action oriented as he got older. The Liam Neeson thing. He started Liam Neeson got all this credit, and really it was it was Denzel's route all along. No, because Neeson did did it first. No, that's not true. This is no, but Neeson made it a Neeson Neeson did it as full time first. Oh. Because if you think about it, Neeson basically taken onwards is just action guy. Like, yeah, he has like a weird romance in there in the middle. <laughs> Maybe. But, um, no, but I feel like Denzel it consistently does them since the since these Tony Scott eras. He consistently does these kind of crime action movies. He fits. Uh, he fits in too many um, like uh, flights and fences and like. American gangster. He puts a lot. He puts too many, you know, um, like actual acting. Like Liam, like it was a legitimate 
noticeable fact that Liam Neeson was acting in silence when it happened because they're like, wow, it's the first Liam Neeson movie that's not like Liam Neeson with a no-name director, you know, doing something. But Denzel's already 52 in this movie, and now we get to back to 2019, or and he's doing Equalizer 2 still. Yeah, and he's doing like he's doing like a remake of the Magnificent Seven, which is not good. Um, but just like it's one of those things you just shouldn't have remade. As far as Denzel is concerned in Deja Vu, I said I didn't think he had much to man on fire. I do think he had something to this. Because one I did say no yeah. stares at TV screen like Denzel. If you're gonna watch anyone just like look at shit, like you want to watch Denzel's face look at shit. Absolutely. Angry and things, and he, I think he's his best acting scene is when he's getting like so frustrated with their explanations, and he like smashes a TV and says, "Look, that's TV. I broke it. It's dead. It's done. Now explain to me using those kind of language." And I think he just has that like noble anger in a way that that, that frustration comes out without going over the top. That like only Denzel can pull off as such an entertaining. You know, yeah. He's a really good like everyman uh, audience surrogate, but also adds credibility to ridiculousness. So like they're talking about we're going back four days, like but like Denzel's buy-in because of our trust in him as an actor and as a character kind of just helps us buy into. And his competence is used so much better in this inspire because they they do yes. work in to explain how this guy is so his reputation is so high. By yes. Watching- but before he's getting recruited, you get to watch him do his everyday job of trying to solve this. I said finding bomb gun golf bridges. Right. He finds the exposed. That actually is really good because I said one of my frustrations with Man on Fire is uh, there's a point in the movie where we're supposed to believe that this guy is really good at his job. But we're never, we're never shown that at all. We're just kind of like told it in passing. This yeah. movie does a really like, – does the really simple thing that um, Tony Scott is good at where it's like – how, what's the one scene to establish competence? Like he does this in Crimson Tide where they do the whole, you know, um, communication throughout the submarine that establishes competence. Like this is a, that scene of the boat with the bridge is really good. He's like, he's looking at it. He's like, oh, okay. I see it's this kind of explosive, that really small scene, but it's also like super technical. And it's really clear really quickly that, oh, wow, Denzel knows what he's doing. And he goes up to the other officers and he says, here's this evidence. And the officers go, oh, this is really important evidence. And like that, that just that, that really quick building of credibility and competency and um, experience for the main character is, I think, really valuable in a story like this. Yeah, it's the importance of procedural aspects in movies. Watching someone go through the procedure of doing their job is character development because they're watching them, you know, interact in their profession. And that helps us understand them. So. Absolutely. Um, Zach, do you have any final thoughts? On men on deja vu. No, I know. I feel like with us starting talking about the time travel stuff, it may sound really negative, but the movie's a lot of fun. In a lot of ways, yeah. it, it, it kind of reaches a buzzkill and how the time travel was treated, um, treated, you know, in the last half hour, but also like they just didn't have enough trust in the kind of um, unique procedural aspect of the movie that they had for the first hour and a half. And they went for something a little more generic. Um, so it's just like disappointing, but it doesn't. Um, you know, interfere with my enjoyment of the first 90 minutes that I find mm-hmm. entertaining and engaging and interesting. It's definitely just so much more interesting than, you know, Man on Fire is for a lot of reasons. Um, so uh, happy that I was worried about it after Man on Fire because I really like it. So I'm, I'm happy this was able to kind of put me back in this month's um, theme and be more excited moving forward as well um, as we start boarding trains. Yeah, absolutely. Um I do think that part of the the reason that the back half succeeds, even if I don't like it as much as the first half, 
is that the movie kind of doesn't care about the time travel and is kind of I, I like their lack of caring kind of allows you to just go along with the ridiculousness of it it's not a movie that tries to you know because like if you watch a movie and they want to be super technical about the time travel if the time travel doesn't work it then literally ruins the entire movie for you um and i think the fact that this movie is kind of laissez-faire with its time travel elements allows you to be more forgiving than you would be with something that had spent that it had a 15 minute scene where scientists stood in front of a board and diagrammed out how the timeline worked and how time travel worked i do think my final thought after that is <clears throat> this movie is like a weird um memory for katrina movie in it's it is very yeah. it's very at the end it's like it has a statement about you know the hurricane katrina and the tragedy there and this movie is it, it's very weird that it chose to do that because i mean it is set in new orleans but um besides that it has absolutely nothing to do with katrina i mean outside of like a couple scenes where it's like look devastation from katrina it's just i just think i, I don't really think there's much to say about this thing i just thought this was a very interesting aspect of the movie that they chose to bring that in when they didn't need to I think it's just a really kind gesture because I, I don't think it's like, hey, actually this movie is about people in New Orleans, but the, it's like when you lose someone who worked on the movie and they died yeah. and they did a memoriam thing. They filmed the movie, you know, in New Orleans, I'm assuming. They did. Set, and it said in New Orleans, you know, before Katrina happened. So it was like... Actually, it's filmed in New Orleans after. After. That's why I thought maybe they were giving like an ode because like, thank you for what we gave and we're sorry of everything you went through. So after, but I think it's still just like a a respect. Hey, the city less film there. It doesn't have to do yeah. the movie, but you know, the city was part of that we want to get them. I just thought it was an interesting uh like tidbit at the end, which is like what year is Katrina? Two thousand six. So same year, but so it had been filmed before. The movie came out in No, it's if you go to the Wikipedia page, it was delayed following Caracan Katrina. But the release. Not the I guess release. they no, they had to. They I guess they oh, shot before they and after. They shot so before and after. It still makes sense with what I was trying to say. Like it was during the yes. process of making the movie. This is what the city was going through. Yes, so and it is interesting to... to note that there are shots of the devastation wrought by Katrina. There are some overhead shots of them traveling around the city that clearly show the effects of the flooding and the effects of the hurricane. I just thought that was an interesting uh, side point. Um, we have concluded our discussion of Deja Vu. I'm glad, like you. That this got us back on track after Man on Fire, which was a bit of a slog and kind of a frustrating movie to watch. I definitely, I know about, I don't know about you. I sat down to watch this and was like, please, can this just be a little bit more fast paced and a little bit more, you know, action and technical? Like the stuff I liked about Crimson Tide and Unstoppable, can I can I have a little bit more of that? And um, I'm glad to say that I, I think it does give you more of what you're looking for in a Tony Scott Denzel Washington movie. Not the tightness of Crimson Tide, but still clear. No, it's not as it's not as tight. It's not as perfected as Crimson Tide, but it does have a little bit more of the momentum and like you're you're more invested along. I don't find myself. I did not find myself watching Deja Vu to be like, I need to take a break because I find myself being bored, and I did find myself being bored a lot of times with uh, Man of Fire. But next week we come back, week four, talking. It's train time, Zach Ford. For those are kidding. Oh, I'm going to get real nostalgic next week because I fucking love the subway and I wrote it not just because of quarantine, but because I moved away from Chicago. Uh, I know. Six years ago. And I and my number one thing I miss is I love, I love, I'm a big fan. Of, I'm a big fan of the tea in Boston. So I will join you in this. Um, we're talking the taking of Pella 123, which is the subway movie. And then Unstoppable the week after is more of the open Amtrak train movie. So, uh, 
we'll be, we'll be on some trains coming up. Uh, with that being said, as we said in the middle of this, kind of a crazy time in the world. Uh, stay safe and, uh, you know, do everything you need to do to make sure your mental state and your physical state are both safe because it's a, it's a crazy uh, world. We've got some political shenanigans. We've got a giant virus. You know, we've got a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world. You know, it's a tough time of the year as we get into the, you know, the, some of the darkest months. And, and you know, just wanted to say uh, to everyone listening, watching, um, you know, take care of yourself. Self-care is really important. And any uh, thing you can do for self-care, no matter how silly or small or irrelevant you may think it be, is really important. And taking time for that is a really good thing. And you should make sure you take that time. And it doesn't make you an apathetic person because you're trying to take self-care. You can still care Absolutely. about and also take time to, um, you know, find joy in existence as well. You can do Absolutely. That. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I'm glad we agreed there. Are we ready here? Oh, it's time to sing the song. We did the podcast. We said the words. That's the Lucas and Zach podcast show. Oh, that's the show. <laughs>